This is the kick. This is it. Douglas, number 11. Tony Douglas can win the North American Soccer League Championship for the Los Angeles Aztecs by making this kick. Here it is. Beautiful save by Toriani. He's making him take it again. Wait a minute. I think he's making him take it again. Toriani moved too soon. And Douglas will get a chance to kick it again. Toriani made his move too soon. Before the ball is kicked and the referee, John Davis, is indicating. Oh, yes, he moved. Oh, did he move? Of course, the upper part of his body can move as long as he doesn't move, move his feet. From the end zone view, here we are. You can see he moved his right foot oh. well before the ball was kicked. All right, here it is again now. Douglas with an opportunity to win the championship for Los Angeles, and he does! The Aztecs have won the championship! Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Greetings. How are you, everybody? It's Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. I thank you for finding us and uh, for downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, and uh, hopefully some fun uh, and interesting stories and tales to share with you this week. Uh, as our guest Patrick Horn joins us uh, to talk about a very interesting slice of the uh, very interesting tableau of the North American Soccer League. Obviously, we spent a lot of time uh, on previous episodes talking about soccer and the NASL in particular. Uh, and you've heard from many different voices and more to come, of course, uh, about sort of uh, the untold stories and the uh, continuing legacy, I guess, of this league that uh, isn't necessarily fully uh, understood or well uh, appreciated by today's uh, practitioners of, of Major League Soccer. And uh, this uh, conversation with Patrick, which uh, I think you'll enjoy, talks about a, uh, uh, frankly, an un unspoken uh, kind of vibe. Uh, and that is the, uh, the the role of the black player, the pioneers, if you will, of the, the North American Soccer League. And, and boy, oh boy, what a, a tremendous smattering of players that uh, came uh, into the North American Soccer League back in its heyday. And uh, as uh, Patrick will, uh, will tell us in a few moments, the backbone, frankly, uh, of this league that uh, we've uh, firmly established as being uh, integral to uh, the success that uh, American soccer, North American soccer enjoys uh, today with the fledgling MLS and USL and and, and hopefully a uh, World Cup participating team in the next uh, cycle. But uh, if you remember uh, some of the great names, like not only the Pelés and the Carlos Albertos and the Sabios of the world, uh, those are sort of the name players, but but there's a whole host of, of black players that came from various uh, corners uh, of the world. Yes, the African-American players born and raised in the United States, for sure, but but many more, frankly, who came during the late 60s and early 19, oh, all of the 1970s and early 1980s, for that matter, from various places in the Caribbean uh, or Caribbean, depending on your perspective, certainly from Europe, but also from South Africa and other points uh, around the globe. I and mean, we're talking about uh, uh, amazing players like Steve David, right, who was the uh, the MLS, excuse me, the MLS, the North American Soccer League most valuable player in 1975. Uh, Randy Horton, who was the uh, MVP of the North American Soccer League in 1972. Warren Archibald, he too was a, ma uh, a major, I keep going back, a most valuable player in the North American Soccer League. These were years even prior to Pele even arriving in 1975. Those are three guys that you'll see on the uh, cover 
of Patrick Horn's book called Black Pioneers of the North American Soccer League. But uh, there's a whole host of players who made major contributions to this league, uh, and it will hear as to why and how. People like Joe Mosono and Clyde Best, our former guest, uh, who we've uh, had a very interesting conversation. Ace Netzelenge and Adi Coker and Clive Charles, of course. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, Carl Valentine and Franz St. Lot, uh, Franz Matthew and Arsene Auguste and, and Willem Mufon, uh, you know, Godfrey Ingram. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. These are uh, amazing players that uh, came and to ply their trade in the North American Soccer League, the, uh, the league that was uh, gaining steam in the 70s and early 80s and arguably, not arguably, created the foundation upon which uh, certainly a very successful World Cup in 1994 uh, and a pro league that is uh, thriving, uh, now approaching, we think, 30, maybe 32 teams uh, in the years to come via MLS and and a and a thriving United Soccer League's system underneath it. Uh, but all of that uh, is uh, fodder for our conversation with Patrick Horn, uh, the author of Black Pioneers of the NASL. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation and, frankly, learn a lot from it. Uh, as I did. And I uh, encourage you to uh, enjoy that in a couple of moments. Uh, before we get there, of course, though, we've got to pay some bills. And uh, we're going to do so this week with our friends at 503 Sports, 503-sports.com. And they fancy themselves, uh, and rightly so, as the quote-unquote king of throwbacks. And it's just amazing uh, a collection uh, of stuff that uh, that they have, not only in t-shirts, but also jerseys lovingly crafted uh, from historical photography, and you're going to find some really amazing things, in particular, not only in uh, uh, football, I mean, World Football League, USFL. You want to impress your friends with a jersey from uh, the old World League of American Football. By golly, 503 Sports has it. That's 503-sports.com. And uh, make sure you use the promo code SEATS uh, when you do so for 10% off all of your uh, all of your purchases. Uh, they even have something uh, they done in partnership uh, with our friend Tim Gasson, the WHA Hall of Fame uh, is what uh, Tim is is behind. And, and there's a whole collection of not only T-shirts, but uh, jerseys uh, from some of the old World Hockey Association teams. Uh, if you fancy yourself as an Indianapolis Racers fan and want a very smart looking sweater slash jersey uh, of the 1978 version of the Indianapolis, excuse me. Yeah, Indianapolis. That's right. Uh, racers. You'll find a beautiful uh, a version of that. On 503 Sports, you also find something uh, around if you're, uh, the Cincinnati Stingers. That was a, an interesting sort of rivalry between Cincinnati and Indianapolis back in the day. The Cincinnati Stingers jersey can be yours uh, there, too. Beautiful black and, and white and yellow uh, trim. Uh, it's a fantastic and, and tons of others uh, in the World Hockey Association. And by the way, also plenty of other sports as well. Uh, you will find all of those things uh, and items and sports and teams and leagues at, uh, at 503 Sports. And again, that's 503-sports.com. Don't forget that dash. And uh, make sure, please, indeed, to use that promo code SEATS uh, for 10% off all of your purchases. Again, 503-SPORTS. That's 503-SPORTS.com. And we thank our pal Dustin Alameda and his friends at 503-SPORTS uh, for their uh, support of the show. And uh, we thank you for supporting the show by listening to this very interesting and very educational a conversation uh, with our new pal Patrick Horn as we talk about the Black Pioneers of the old North American Soccer League. Please enjoy. I stumbled across your book, which came out uh, relatively recently, which I thought was a very uh, interesting sort of take 
uh, on the old NASL. And uh, that's that's why I wanted to kind of uh, get together and have a chat about this and hopefully for our audience to benefit from. But before we get into that, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Because you actually did have a couple of cups of coffee in this uh, old NASL. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the old uh, American Soccer League as well. So maybe a little background on your story and uh, your coaching career now before we get into it. Okay. Well, uh, let, let's go way back. I, I was a young boy from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. I came to the U.S. back in 1968 as a teenager and always loved football. Loved, and of course, you know, cricket is the one the sports um, played in the Caribbean as well. So, um, but when I came here, I continued to play uh, soccer till in high school in Brooklyn. Played soccer there. I played three years of high school soccer, made the um, New York State All-Star team. When you do that, you play an all-star game against Philadelphia every year because back then, a lot of scouts from all over, especially the Midwest, they came to the coast. They either went out to California or they came to New York, Philadelphia, and those places where the um, foreigners were. I got a scholarship to a, a, a school called Ottawa University in Ottawa, Kansas. This was 1971. I spent one year in Ottawa which was an NAIA school, and then transferred to Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, which was an NCAA Division One school. And I'll stop you there because I'm sure you're going to want to highlight this, but at that time, right, SIU Edwardsville was very much a, a dominant player on the NCAA Division One soccer scene, right? You were at the right time at the right place. Yes, yes, yes. And that's one of the reasons why I was attracted to uh, SIUE. Um, Bob Gelka, who was part of the U.S. Olympic Committee and a prominent member of the NCAA committees, um, was the coach. But even more, more importantly was uh, our assistant coach was Pat McBride. Pat McBride was um, at the time playing in the, um, in the NPSL, the Regional Professional League at the time, before the NCAA started. So he played, he played there back in 1967. When I got to SIU, Pat was still... Um, you know, Pat was playing by that time in the NASL. So Pat McBride was our assistant coach at SIUE. And um, he told us a lot of stories about playing professionally in the league. And that really piqued my interest because here I was, you know, listening to all these um, stories and how how well it was um, playing professionally. So while there, I decided that I'm going to do my best to play professional soccer. Now, I also think it's interesting that, you know, we, you mentioned Pat McBride, right, as well as the NPSL, right? So these are sort of parts of the, the bigger story, right? So Pat McBride, for those in the St. Louis area, of course, uh, in particular, but is a, is a legendary figure sort of in the pantheon of American soccer uh, players, coaches, uh, administrators, etc. Not uh, by chance, I guess, or perhaps by chance. I mean, uh, he's a foundational figure and, and to be in his uh, his orbit Probably not a bad thing for you, right? No, so it didn't turn out to be a bad thing at all. Because as I said, Pat was there. He told us stories. We asked him. He was playing for the St. Louis Stars. And I, I remember specifically in 72 when I was there, Pat was a member of the St. Louis Stars that lost to the New York Cosmos uh, for the Cosmos' first NASL championship. That game was played right here in Long Island where I live, not too far from where I live right now, at Hostel University Stadium. Uh, and Pat told us all the stories about the game. And one of the players that that beat uh, Pat McPride and the St. Louis Stars because they lost the game two to one 
was one of the gentlemen who eventually was featured in in the book um, that I wrote, The Black Pioneers. So you're uh, featured, if you will, as a, as a player on the grand stage, if you could even call it that, uh, in the mid-70s on this uh, star-studded and or almost championship-winning team. Give us a sense of what this, what your idea as a college player, thinking about possibly going in the, into the pro ranks, what is your perception, your understanding of what is, quote-unquote, professional soccer in this country at, at that time you 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 know it would, the, the, the league was growing the nsl when i got out of school was only about four years old and it was the league to play in i'm not the only one on the team all the other boys on the team wanted to play professional soccer and they all went on to play because we were, we were a good team uh tim twelman went on to play uh professional soccer tim played with minnesota and played with some other teams as well and did very well his son right now, Taylor Twelman, is one of the broadcasters of um, a lot of the games you see on TV. Uh, Tim, uh, Tim Twelman went on to play. John Stremlaw from St. Louis also went on to play professionally. I believe Greg Makowski went on to play professionally too. So we had quite a few players on that team that went on to play professionally. And again, it was the thing to do. Uh, we all loved the game. Uh, the NSL was, you know, was, was big was big. Um, uh, also, um, you know, there were rumblings of Pelé coming and all the top players are going to be coming over and so forth. And then this was going to be the league. You know, nobody thought that um, it'll end so soon because it was really doing well, especially when, you know, Pelé came in 1975. Okay. And that was the same year that we won the championship. That was the same year we won, we beat um, Howard University uh, to win. So we're a top team. We're expecting to get professional contracts. Um, Pelé's entering in the league and players like Eusebio's in the league and, and Carlos Alberto expected to be coming to the league and so forth. So we all envision playing professionally and playing with some of the you know good players from Europe. Um, the travel, because we had a taste of it. When we played at SIU, we traveled around the Midwest. We played at Cleveland State. We came back east. We played Hartwick. You know, we had a big um, rivalry with St. Louis University for the Golden Boot, and that game was played at both Stadium every year. So we had big crowds. Um, we were an ambitious team. SIU had won one championship at the time, and we were looking to win another one. So we, we, we pretty much wanted – it was a natural progression for us, okay, especially when we had Pat McBride, our assistant coach, playing in the league. We naturally thought that we'll ascend to play. And, and, and we're excited, just like the boys are today, um, young fellas, 17 and 18 years old, going on to play professional soccer. So it was a dream. It was a dream come true, and it, and it came true for quite a few of us on, on, on the team. But at the same time, though, there was also this uh, uh, American Soccer League, which many you know of our listeners know was there for, for many, many years prior, but was itself trying to kind of uh, transform itself a bit more, given the success of the North American Soccer League into something more, shall we say, professional itself. I guess what we would today call Division Two, but uh, clearly trying to professionalize itself uh, beyond its sort of uh, uh, ethnic roots uh, in in decades past, and um, you know, also looking for some top talent as well uh, for their franchises. Yeah, but because you know, it was always uh, it was always considered like a second division, and that's the problem that it had. When the NASL came on, they had a lot of big franchises. You know, you had the Cosmos, you had the Philadelphia Atoms, uh, you had the Washington Dats. They played in big stadiums, whereas the ASL, they were playing in small stadiums. The ownership wasn't as, as, as financially sound. 
as the new NASL. The NASL was the big thing. Now, what the league play played it. So the ASL, and in fact, a lot of players left the ASL and got contracts with the NASL. But nevertheless, like myself, those who did not get drafted by an NASL team, you played in the ASL until that opportunity came to play in the NASL. And that's, that was my situation. But the ASL was good. You know, it had some very good players there. Um, unfortunately for me, when I joined the, the, uh, the New Jersey Americans, it was their first year. They were a brand new franchise. We played in Freehold, New Jersey, and um, you know we we had a our coach was um, was uh, um, Richie Melvin, uh, but Richie was a high school coach. He never coached um, uh, any level above high school because it was a young franchise. I guess they were still testing the waters. They didn't want to make you know big commitments, you know, until they see how how things would turn out. So he was a high school coach, and he was coaching us. Where we played, it was a um, it was a car racing facility where we played in um, in, in New Jersey. So that very first year was a was a tough year, and and we had uh, all college players. We had a few, you know, a few um, uh, a few foreign players, but mostly boys from Philadelphia and New York, and a few local players from Jersey. I only lasted a year there. And I had started trying out for a lot of the NASL teams, but um, it, it was it, it was a good league. Um, you know, not everyone could have played in the NASL, and those who didn't, we used that league to stay in the game, uh, keep our hopes up, continue to perfect our game, and get better until that big chance came. But uh, again, it, I think it had that stigma of always being a, a second division type team. And the way the NASL came in when that merger between um, the, the U.S. Soccer Association and the NPSL. I mean, that was a that was that was a big thing. It was a watershed moment for for the U.S., um, especially with Pele coming, Warner Communications and the Cosmos bringing in a lot of um, you know a lot of big name players. Um, the teams played in big stadiums. You know, Philadelphia had a good stadium. You had the, the Cosmos on Randall's Island at Hofstra before they eventually moved to the Meadowlands. Um, down in Memphis um, in 78, they, they played in the Liberty Bowl. So they played in big stadiums. Yeah, the ASL played in, you know, college arenas, college, college, college stadiums and so forth. So it, it had that stigma of being second best. Uh, and um, the, the NASL came in with, with, with good financing and... Um, you know, eventually it took off. Well, let's let's talk about Memphis because that's uh, that's the place where you got your uh, your NASL uh, toehold, and uh, what an interesting market, right? For for professional soccer, Memphis not necessarily known then or maybe even now uh, as a soccer hotbed, but little uh, little remembrances of what uh, Memphis was like, and then we'll maybe get segued into some of your thematics here about uh, about your book. I, I really thought Memphis was going to catch on. Even though I only spent a year there, but when I heard they were moving to Calgary and then eventually folded in AT, I was very disappointed. I thought that was, was a mistake to move. But again, I, you know, I, I believe that Harry Mangurian, who was a furniture, furniture manufacturer down in Florida, and he was involved in racehorsing and so on. He owned horses, uh, big furniture man. He owned the team. And I think when he pulled out, that's when... You know, um, uh, the buyer from from Calgary came in, but Memphis—it's a small city. The people were crazy about the team. Uh, always very hot down there. On the field, the field was small. That played to our advantage. Uh, we did a lot of um, 
treat community work there. I remember going to the uh, the children's hospital there, uh, the, the the Marla Thomas, um, Danny Thomas Hospital that this that family started in Memphis, the children's hospital, making guest appearances there. We went to high schools and gave them tips on playing. We spoke to coaches. We went. We did a lot of things in the community, and I really liked Memphis. Small, but but I liked it, and and I thought that um. Uh, you know that that will really catch on. Um, you know, we we traveled and the, the excitement of of playing in um in Memphis was good. The people it was a novelty to them, uh, again. And and um, you know, we we had some actually had some big name players because I think Tony Field had established himself with with um with the Cosmos, and then he was traded to Memphis that year that 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 we started in in '78. Now this is step back. Memphis really was the Connecticut Bicentennials and um, who only spent a year there and in 77. And then the, the, the franchise was sold and moved to Memphis and, and became the Memphis, Memphis Rose. Um, and we had, uh, you know, quite a few other guys from the, even from the ASL that I played with uh, at New Jersey, um, Henry McCulley, um, Huey, I don't remember Huey's last name now, but there are a few of the boys that played in um, Hugh, Hugh O'Neill, you know, a few of the boys that played with, with, with me in the ASL came to Memphis uh, with, uh, with the Rogues. Um, so, again, uh, you know, the ASL served it for its purpose. It helped to keep those guys in the game. But it was, it was fun in Memphis. Um, uh, you know, we used to get crowds watching us practice. You, you know, at the high school field where we practiced, we, we got crowds that, that came and watched us. The young, young players, they um, were just excited you know, about the game. Uh, and and um, you know I, I just thought that the game would catch on and 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 well it did catch on uh, the, the team just didn't stay around long enough I I I, I don't know why you know uh, it, it takes a while to really you know fill up the Liberty the Liberty Stadium um, but I thought it would have been given a better chance but you, you know those are things that um, you have no control of and you don't know the situation how much uh, commitment uh, these uh, owners put into in, into these teams. And how much they are looking to, um, you know, they, they set a standard. They, they have a criteria. And if, if, I guess, the returns don't meet those criteria, you know, one of them in those days um, didn't have much patience because everybody was still sort of feeling the league out. It's also interesting, though, because, the, the, uh, and obviously in hindsight, right, that 1978 was a very interesting and pivotal year for the North American Soccer League because as that transfer from Connecticut was going on, essentially the, the league, uh, besides some of those transfers like Connecticut to Memphis, expanded by six teams. Talk about doubling down. I mean, I mean that is, you know, and, and in some respects, in some of our conversations, right, uh, a lot of people look back on that uh, that move to to expand so quickly in one year's time as maybe foundationally why the league didn't last past 1984. Because, you know, in this sort of rush to expand, you know, the uh, the ownership isn't necessarily – uh, fully vetted and baked and 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 all that, right? So it's interesting. I mean, if you're in the middle of it though, you're you're looking at it. You're becoming a, a member of this team. You're one of those, uh, so we say, new franchises, right? That's that's got to feel like you know we're I'm getting onto a rocket ship here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think in terms of your comment about what the expansion, I I, I think that might be that, that might be a very small part of it. But I mean, the, the, the league continued from 78. They got it right up to the 80, almost 83. That's well, five years on. I, I think what, one of the reasons I believe that it, it, it didn't last is because the Cosmos was always doing well. And, I, I, and teams, 
the, the, the measure in the yardstick really was the cosmos, you know, and, and, and the cosmos averaged 50,000 or so and, and in playoff games up to 70. That year, 78, there was the cosmos, I, I, I believe, on Tampa Bay, I, I think, uh, in, in the Meadowlands, and you're talking about 77,000 people or so um, watching watching the game. I, I think some of the new franchises and, and the ones that were established started to spend a bit more money uh, on personnel and, and doing other things. Uh, and eventually, I think it didn't. Uh, and that's because of the Cosmos. Everyone tried to keep up with the Cosmos to an extent, try to get the name players in, try to get some, um, you know, some more, uh, you know, more expand on their marketing and so on, but more, especially personnel. And it just didn't, um, it, it, it did, the, the response wasn't quite what they expected. And I think that's the reasons why, you know, they, they, they got, very exhaustive in the in their funds. Uh, I think I I I would that that's my assessment. I think that that's what happened. Um, but uh, you, you know, so so I, I initially the Cosmos was that 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 helped to hype the league and and give it publicity and create enthusiasm, uh, and that's good. And and, that, and that's why it's ironic because eventually the Cosmos was inadvertently, I should say, indirectly was at the core of the downfall of the league because I think they try to keep up with the Cosmos. They try to um, bring in players, you know, to increase the um, their fan base and so forth. They did a lot of, lot of gimmicks and so on. And um, at some point in time, you know, if, if the returns are not quite there to match the, the expenditures, then then um, everybody has second thoughts. And I think that's that's, that's what happened. Well, let's let's talk about sort of the player pool that, you know, with, with big expansion and and a league that's, you know, essentially getting to 24 franchises. Right. Which, you know, at the time seems almost unconscionable. Obviously, players are important. Right. And a lot of the North American Soccer League player pool why was obviously uh, comprised of uh, a lot of especially uh, European players that uh, maybe a smaller dollop of South American players. But you're obviously coming from the Caribbean uh, there are lots of, of of places from which great player talent can be found, as well as, frankly, the league's uh, uh, stated desire uh, to give American players uh, a chance, uh, even to the point of having a, a, a rule uh, mandating at least three North American players, at least American or Canadian players on the field at all times to, you know, ostensibly help grow and uh, nurture uh, talent here across the pond. Um, maybe a little bit of your assessment of how some of uh, the better players, say from the Caribbean or uh, from other places. I mean, you 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 mentioned without naming him, but maybe this is a good place to start. Uh, it seems to me like a guy like Randy Horton from the 1972 Cosmos, uh, most valuable player, uh, I believe, of the league. He uh, is a really maybe good example of kind of how some of the uh, the doors got uh, busted open as a as a pipeline, if you will, of players in this league, especially in the early years. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of before the, you know, players from the club, a lot of players from Europe came in, a lot of top players from Europe came in. I mean, you know, apart from Pele, Carlos Alberto came from South America, Beckenbauer came in, Johan Niskins came in, um, Gerd Mueller was down in in, uh, in, in Florida, Nene uh, Kubias was, was in from, from Peru. Uh, you had Karl Heinz Granitze in Ch- in Chicago from from uh, from from Germany. Um, a lot of top players down in Tampa Bay. You had Clyde Best, and then Clyde moved to Portland. Uh, you had Rodney Marsh come in. You had Georgie Best up in um up in uh, L.A. 
and and they were played. They were they came in. They were dead, and they did well for the league. It really was a, a European league, you know. Um, the Caribbean players economically helped because most of them were just as good, but they weren't paid. They were paid maybe about a third of what the top players from Europe were paid. So economically, the Caribbean players really did human service. Apart from playing well and doing well for the league, coaching the kids and so on, they won't play that much. So teams saved money by bringing in Caribbean and African players, uh, whereby a lot of the Europeans will play more. The other thing I thought was um, was a, a sort of a mistake was the concept was good uh, of using, actually they started with two Americans, six on the squad, two Americans on the field at all times. One of the problems with that is one American was always, more, in most cases, a goalkeeper. So you only really were obligated to play one American in the field. I thought it should have been more. It should have been at least three or four Americans, at least four Americans with the European players. Because I think you had enough of good, decent American players, and we would have gotten better playing among the Europeans and the Africans and the Caribbean players. So I thought at least four players should have been um should have been on on the field at all times again it would have been most likely a goalkeeper we had some top goalkeepers you know in the league at the time and then maybe three few players and that i think would have brought the american player along much much quicker and it would have helped in in the um, in, in the fan base because now if you have four americans playing and you draft wisely and you draft american players who played in that area whether in college or whether they grew up there now you have someone on the field that the fans can identify with. And that would have created a lot more interest uh, much faster. But they stuck with the two Americans, and in many cases, one goalkeeper to unit there. Granted, a lot has to do with the coach as well. So some of the English and European coaches, you know, they used uh, two, three American players. They, they, they went beyond that, even though they were obligated to two. In, many, in some cases, they used three and four American players based on what they had. Because I think um, the one year Philadelphia Atoms won the um, won the NSL and they had a lot of St. Louis players. Uh, I believe it, I, I, it might have been Al Miller, who was an American coach, who coached them at the time. I'm not quite sure. So uh, the Atoms, um, Miller trusted the American players. He had a lot of guys from, from St. Louis and different um, American schools, and he actually won. And that proved that um, at least four, five American players, and the other half of the team foreigners. You know, we, we would have come along much, much better. And and that was my situation too. The other thing is too, which is uh, interesting. I was a forward. If you were forward, and in my case, I was I wasn't fast. I was slow. I'm a big guy. I'm six two. You know, so I held up the ball and I could shoot. But if you were quick, if you were fast, and you were forward, you, you played on the wing. Yeah, but if you're a center forward like myself, and, and in most cases, the forwards and the midfield players, those positions were dedicated, were, were allotted to the foreign players. So I'm a forward, I get out of SIU, and I was told, we're going to transfer you, we're going to transform you to become a defender. And that's why I played when I was in Memphis. And it was difficult for me, but that, that was the situation with quite a few American players. You know, especially if you're, my situation, you're center forward and you're not fast. Whereas if you're a winger and you can play wide and, and get crosses in and use your speed, 
that's in a forward position was going to be an English guy or, or a European guy. Also in the midfield, if you're a midfield, if you're a schemer in the midfield player, uh, you have to be, you would have had, as an American, you would have had to have been very good, excellent player to, to displace the English guys who came over. So a lot of the American guys played, um, we were transformed to play defense and uh, the forwards and the midfield were pretty much, you know, those positions were pretty much set aside for, for the foreign players. Let's take a break. Let's uh, tell you about our friends at thegreatcoursesplus.com. I think you've heard me talk to uh, you about them uh, in a few other episodes. But The Great Courses Plus is unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Uh, and uh, we're talking about all kinds of uh, topics, uh, almost uh, college-like, if you will, uh, across a wide array of subjects that uh, will interest just about every interest that you might have across the realms of science and economics and art and hobbies and personal or professional development, history, uh, you name it, there is a course or two or many uh, devoted to those topics and more at thegreatcoursesplus.com. And as as you've heard me also say, uh, there is a, a tremendous new course uh, now available, uh, their first real deep dive into the realm of sports. Uh, it's called Play Ball, the Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. It is created in partnership with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Uh, it is taught uh, by uh, the Hall's Bruce Markison, and it's about 24 uh, lectures uh, deep uh, into some of the uh, most interesting developments in the uh, in the rise of the sport of baseball uh, in this country. And, and it, it does uh, cross into a bunch of different topics uh, that we've kind of scratched the surface on here on this little show. Uh, you know, we've talked about, for example, the reserve clause. Uh, and its impact on uh, the players and the ownership and the business models uh, of baseball. Uh, there's a, an entire course or lecture devoted to that. Uh, there's an episode uh, devoted to American politics uh, and baseball. Uh, we've uh, had a couple of, uh, of conversations sort of around that. Uh, the impact of war on the sport of baseball. Uh, and just many, many more. Uh, and it's, it's a tremendous opportunity uh, to learn and it doesn't feel like learning folks it really doesn't uh, it's a video streaming service it is available online uh, in app form you can stream it to any device and the really cool thing about the app is you can actually download all the uh, courses if you'd like if you're not going to be near an internet connection or you can even listen to it in audio only format uh, let's say you're driving and uh, can't uh, be uh, uh, be bothered with the visuals it is, it is an amazing course. This course in particular, Play Ball, the Rise of, of Baseball as America's Pastime. But literally all the hundreds of other courses uh, that you can try for free for one month when you use uh, our special URL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Again, one free month of the entire Great Courses uh, a cadre of offerings. Yours uh, to try for free an entire month. For a limited time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash good seats. Does this sound too good to be true? You bet it does, but it ain't. It's uh, it's absolutely legit. Uh, I guarantee you're going to find these uh, these lectures to be interesting. And this one in particular about the rise of baseball 
uh, with Bruce Markison from the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. Give it a try. If not for anything, for this series alone, the baseball series, get an entire free month of that as well as all the other great stuff at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. We appreciate The Great Courses Plus for their sponsorship. And we, of course, appreciate you listening to the remainder of our conversation right now. It does put into perspective, right, sort of the uh, the quality player and sort of the, uh, I guess, the calculus that uh, the coaches, uh, and you said it before, largely coming from sort of European sort of backgrounds and expectations, right? You know, those are kind of the rules that they're dealt with, right? They kind of want to arguably try to minimize the leakage, if you will, or the uh, the weakness of perhaps arguably the, the American player by comparison to, you know, the bigger name players that they're familiar with and probably trying to attract uh, to play uh, big name soccer here in the States. That's right. That's right. Uh, and so that was the case. But the, re- regarding the black players now, um, as I played in the league, there were quite a lot of black players who were there who really did well. Um, today, everyone sees the MLS and um, they, they really don't understand that it was the NASL that's responsible for all the soccer that's being played now because the NASL was the first professional outdoor national league, national league across the country, you know, sanctioned by FIFA. And because the NASL, even though it folded in 84, because it was successful, it really was a successful league. Sometimes you had some excellent games, you know, because it was so successful, it, FIFA realized that soccer or football could thrive in the U.S. That was that was the big um, that was the watershed moment. The NSL showed that soccer can survive here, and to further enhance that and to further push that along, because of the NSL, the U.S. was award, was awarded the 1994 World Cup, of course, with Pelé's urgent. Once the 94 World Cup came, it showed how successful it was. U.S. already had stadiums and the infrastructure and the communications network. So much wasn't, didn't have to be done. Stadiums didn't have to be built. To that point, the 1994 World Cup was the most successful World Cup for FIFA to that point. FIFA took, because it was so successful, to, FIFA was committed. They took a lot of monies from the 94 World Cup and started and helped them help the, the Americans to start MLS. And, and so that's the connection between the NSL and, and what's happening here today. It all started with the NSL. And again, um, a lot of black players, because my book is about the black players' contribution, they, they're pretty much forgotten. If you talk, when you talk about the NSL, the names that pop up are Pele, Beckenbauer, Eusebio, Carlos Alberto, and names like that. We forgot that a lot of black players from Africa, from the Caribbean, from um, from from uh, some from Central America, and quite a few of them from from England came over, and I, I felt that um, they were they're almost uh, the hidden figures of of the uh, of football of soccer in, in North America, and I thought that um, the story 
the story had to be told about them. I felt that was an, un, an, an untold story. And, you know, the familiar thing about a lot of black history is that a lot of black history is not told. And I think it's up to, you know, a black person or the black community to tell their story. Because if you don't tell your story, no one else will. And I played in the league. I knew quite a few of the black players who played there. And um, and I just thought that it's a story untold. I just thought that um, I should put it on record. And the book is a record of, of black participation in the development of soccer in, in the USA. So when the history books are written, you know, um, the, the, the black player will find his, his their places uh, in, in those history books. In the first 10 years of the league, we had three black players that were MVPs. In 1972, Randy Horton, who was from Bermuda, he was the MVP, and he led the Cosmos to the Cosmos' first, first uh, NSL championship. And these, these players came before Pelé, before Pelé. So they, they, they set the groundwork for Pelé to come and just to have things to take off. In 1973, the next MVP was Warren Archibald from Trinidad and Tobago. He had played with the New York Generals in the NPSL, and then the Generals joined the NSL for one year. They folded, and then Archibald joined the Washington Darts and then the Miami Toros. And then in 1975, another Caribbean guy, Steve David, Warren Archibald's friend from Trinidad and Tobago, Steve was one of the most prolific scorers in the league. He scored 100 goals in the, in the NASL. He played alongside great players like Georgie Best out in, uh, the, with, the, with the Aztecs. Steve was the MVP in 1975. In 1977, he led the league in scoring again and should have been named MVP. But Beckenbauer came over at midseason, and when you have a big-name player like Beckenbauer coming over and playing, you know, I think they felt obligated. And it, I thought it was maybe economics and maybe for publicity as well. Uh, Beckenbauer was named the MVP instead of Steve David. So in the first 10 years of the league, you had black players who were MVPs, and you had some excellent black players. Nene Kubias down in Fort Lauderdale was an excellent player. You know, he... he he brought that South American touch. And you see, at that time, you have young American players watching the game. And so it's important that the NSL make a good showing and that they show the American players the right way to play this game or a, a very skillful, creative way um, to, to, to play the game. And uh, you had a, a, a black player from South Africa called um, uh, Ace Nesalegwe, an excellent player. He played... The most games for any of the black players, the 240-something games he's played, uh, he played in the league. Uh, and, and he was an excellent player as well. Um, excellent player. The first rookie in the NSL was um, Kaiser Motang. He was also from Johannesburg, South, South Africa. They were from the same team. And he was the first rookie that helped to lead the Atlanta Chiefs to the first NASL championship. And if you look at the, the, the Atlanta Chiefs, before the Cosmos was prominent, Atlanta was the starship um, uh, team. That was the flagship team, Atlanta. And if you look at the picture of the Atlanta team, they had a lot of Caribbean players from Jamaica and, and from Trinidad and Tobago and, and from England. Quite a few black players there. So they played a prominent role. Clyde Best came over and helped Tampa Bay won its only championship. 
Addy Coker came over from West Ham as well. Clive Charles came over from West Ham. And after Clive Charles played in the league, Clive went on to be a prominent coach at the um, University of Portland for the male and female teams there and was one of the U.S. coaches. Then you had Lincoln Phillips, who came over in 1967, played for the Baltimore Bays in, uh, in, in, um, with uh, the NPSL. And then by 1970, he was in the NASL with the Washington Darts. Lincoln Phillips was the only black player, or the, yeah, he was the only black player to be a player coach in the NASL, and he did that in 1970 when he led the team to the um, to the NASL championship game. They lost to the Rochester team, um, Rochester Lancers, I think it was, uh, in 1970. But Phillips was the only black player to be. Um, a player coach. And then, of course, he went on to coach Howard University. Howard became the um, the only black institution to win um, an NCAA national championship in any sport, in any, any American sport. Uh, you had some excellent, Leroy Dillian was also another excellent player. Um, uh, so you, you had some black players who were very good, very skillful. Not only that, they coached. They coached and 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 uh, they coached college and and uh, schools and and clubs and the youths in the communities that was part of their contract in the communities where they played. And here's a good anecdote. You know the name. I think everybody knows the name Greg Vanny, who's coaching in Toronto. Sure. And Greg, right? Greg, uh, two years ago, did something that no NASL team has done. And probably can't be simply because they're not they're not part of the Canadian Cup. But with Toronto, Greg won the Canadian Cup. He won the MLS Cup, and he won the um the the regular season um uh, trophy in the NASL. Right. The, the play, was it what shield is it called? The players. The, it's called the supporter shield. Yeah. The supporter shield. Right. Now Greg Vanny was coached by Leroy Dillion, You know when Greg was twelve years old. And I interviewed Greg for the book, The Black Pioneers of the North American Soccer League. That's the name of the book. I interviewed Greg when he came to New York. Uh, and, and he said, you know, Dillian always, and this was down in Arizona when Dillian had retired, Dillian always encouraged them to be very technical. He said, Leroy Dillian would get the ball and he would hold it. And he and about four or five other young players would go around him and try to get the ball from him and couldn't. So, you know, here's Greg Vanny, who's learning from one of the black pioneers, one of the guys who, you know, played in the NASL. Greg went on to play for the U.S. And there was also another bittersweet moment for Dillian, who is from Trinidad and Tobago. He's watching the U.S. play Trinidad and Tobago in 1989. It's a game all Trinidad had to do was draw the game in Trinidad and Tobago, and Trinidad would go to the World Cup, Italy 90. Italia 90. Instead, the U.S. won that game one nothing and went to Italy 90 and went on to um, to become what 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 the that team got back to the U.S. after 50 years because it was um, 50 uh, 40 years sorry it was 1950 was the last World Cup for it. And Greg Vanny again, this is the same player who <laughs> was coached by Dillian. So here's Dillian. Uh, you know, he's got a heartache because his, his his country is lost to the U.S., but at the same time, bittersweet moment, he enjoyed watching, you know, having one of his charges, Greg Vanny, being a part of the U.S. team. So there's, there's a lot of stories uh, like that, I thought, um, in the book. 
Uh, uh, Artie Cannon was a was a young player out of San Francisco, uh, and he um, he was drafted by Dallas in 1972, and he was the first African American, first African American to be drafted by a professional soccer team. And there weren't too many African Americans in the league. And the second one, as you know, was Cleveland Lewis, who was the brother of uh, the great sprinter Carl Lewis. Cleve played with me in Memphis. And um, he went to um, Brandeis, did well for Brandeis, was drafted by the Cosmos, but uh, didn't play with the Cosmos, didn't play with the Cosmos. He was in preseason, but came down to uh, Memphis, was traded to Memphis with uh, Samuel Tony Field. So there's a lot of little stories about the black player. They were really prominent. They, they made a big difference in the league. And I thought these stories should be told. No question. And and, and it's obviously part of the, the fabric uh, the layered texture fabric of this of this league. One of our first guests about a year and a half ago was uh, was the aforementioned Clyde Best and yeah, Bermudian, I believe, of origin, right? And I want to use his story kind of as a, as a segue because this this gets obviously a little a little difficult. But I, I want to hear sort of your what you've sort of learned in in all of your historical pursuits and interviews and conversations with folks around this theme, as I'm sure many uh, black players across the globe not just in the United States, sort of as experienced, right, is obviously the scourge of racism and, and, and ignorance, right? And, you know, his the title of his book, right, it speaks specifically, it's called The Acid Test, right, which is, you know, it re- re- speaks to, you know, an abhorrent uh, incident when he's playing days in England. And, you know, one of the things I asked him about was sort of, you know, did he experience that similar sort of ignorance and racism uh, in the United States when he came to play in Tampa Bay and then later in Portland? And if I remember correctly, a lot of his thought was, you know, this felt like a much more, you know, open and or uh, embracing kind of uh, uh, approach in, uh, in society. Now, that said, right, I cannot imagine that, you know, the the plight of being uh, black in this country and and playing uh, professional sports, you know, that's not necessarily still, sadly today, the easiest path. I'm just wondering if if you learned or divined from any of your conversations, your interviews, any sort of you know specific uh, problems or issues, or because you know through as a child, right, when I was a fan of this league, I you know, and some of this is you know childhood ignorance, but it felt to me that you know in retrospect that this was. A fairly well integrated league, or, or a very sort of shall we say colorblind league. Right, this is about pro soccer, the sport, and growing it. But then again, I'm a white, you know, male American, right? Which I, so I don't know any of that. So I'm curious as to what your perceptions were, and from what you had in conversations around the challenges, if you will, if there were any, of being a black player in this league. Well, I, I think um, uh, one of the things uh, regarding that is I, I heard a few incidents. And it has to do with the part of the country that you're in. I, I, I think the Americans, because the sport was still a novelty, they, they, just, they saw the black players simply as soccer players uh, that they were enjoying. And that was it. So for the most part, that's what happened. You know? Then again, a lot of this racism comes out when, when you have the, the, the fervor of the game, very, um, that, that's innate uh, to, to the fans. Uh, you know, for instance, if if you're so passionate about your team, but you're losing to a team with black players, that's, that this is what's going to happen. You're going to use racism to try to detract some of the black players on the, on the, on the opposing team, or you, you're just mad that your team is losing, uh, or, or you know. So that 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 bad side of you comes out. Um, the, the game was not at that point in the U.S. yet. 
you know, and it still isn't. You know, I think they just the people are just enjoying the game and they're seeing the black players, you know, just as players for the most part. There were some incidents. I, I mean, I, I think um, down in Atlanta, you know, I, I there were some situations there where in housing, the black players were um, shown housing in some real rundown neighborhoods, whereas the white players got housing elsewhere. Uh, also, black players had to go and find work in the off season. Had to go back to their countries or work part time. That wasn't the case with the white players. They got the year on contracts and they were able to live in nice houses and bring their families over. So that and 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 that's not necessarily coming from the fans. That's the establishment, the owners of the team, and and they're ingrained and they understand, uh, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and 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 they they that that was their behavior at the time. So that happened in Atlanta. That that happened in Atlanta. But for the most part, you know, most of the players did not experience the kind of racism on the field that was exhibited in uh, in Europe. And that brings me to a point that, that I'd like to make. I, I think American officials, when they're administering soccer in the stadiums, when they're creating the rules and regulations, I think they have to be mindful of the American fans taking the bad habits from Europe and bringing it into the sport here. The, the, the American game should be the new soccer game. Do you know what I mean? We should, be, we should be moving the game forward. We should be the model for what soccer truly should be in the 22nd, 21st, 22nd century. We should not allow players to go in referees' faces. We should try not to divide fans like they do in England. Uh, you know, and some of the bad habits that I see the players carry on and going to ground, you know, to 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 create um, fouls for referees and all that sort of stuff. I think they should be mindful of that, and all the bad habits that that we see that goes on in Europe. We should we should try to you know combat that in 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 the American game. Keep the American game as pure as possible as possible. And, 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 and try to um, guard against the, the bad habits that we see in Europe up, you know, up to today. I mean, not too long ago, um, the, the young left back from Tottenham was playing for England in Montenegro. And uh, there was a racial, racial slurs at him. Uh, that was over the last FIFA, um, the last FIFA break, FIFA uh, World Cup date when they were playing World Cup games. So it's still going on. Clyde Best, I know Clyde, Clyde would see the American game as a paradise because, you know, there, there was a time when, when when Clyde was booed and there were not, nothing but monkey chants and so on. You know, that's coming out of the society, you see? And then the society is very, you, you know, the, the, the game is so much a part of the society that everything that happens you know, in society really pretty much manifests itself in the game. So Clyde, is, uh, Clyde told me one day, he said um, he got a letter saying that, um, you know, when you come through the tunnel against a certain team, we're going to throw acid in your face. That that was a letter to Clyde. Then you had another uh, pioneer from um, England at the time. His name was Cyril Regis, who died recently, played for West Brom. He was a little after Clyde. He was mid-70s. Mid, mid and he and, and um, Brendan Batson and um, the other player that played with him there, they... they they were prominent in the first division and they got a lot of death threats as well. 
Um, so we just received a bullet in the mail telling him this is what will happen to him, the bullet that is, if he played for England. Um, so uh, again, the football is so much part of the society. Uh, you know, the, race, the racism comes out. It, it's as though you're competing for a job and that happens. Uh, so I, I, think, I, I think the U.S., as they watch the game develop in America, they have to be mindful of these kinds of things, the separation in stadiums. Um, and sometimes players on the field and their antics, they encourage the, the, the fans. You know, I think drinking, uh, drinking at the games is something that we have to be mindful of because this is when these things come out. So I, I don't think we want to adopt all the habits that we see in Europe because it could lead to, um, you know, negative responses uh, on the field. So, you know, that, that's something I think they should be mindful of and not adopt all the um, cultural antics that go with the game that they see in, in Europe. As you're talking about this book and, and, and uh, bringing up uh, uh, these topics and, and, and pointing to uh, some of these, frankly, pioneers uh, of, the, of the old NASL, uh, what was your, what has been your perception of the, uh, current generation uh, of players in the United States, MLS, USL, et cetera, in terms of their, I don't know, shall we say, understanding of the NASL and, and what sort of it sort of led to, and, and as well, the plight and the uh, contributions uh, of the black players uh, of the NASL? Or do you do you sense that there's a a lack of understanding of that history or, or frankly, just a not uh, worthy of investigation because they're too worried about their current playing careers? They, they just don't know. Nobody has told them. Nobody talks about the NASL. So the, the connection that I made before, the NASL to the World Cup, to uh, MLS, they don't understand why, they, why the, the game is flourishing and thriving so much now. There's a big chasm there. Yeah, you know, so they, they, don't, they know nothing about the NASL, and I hope this book helps them to understand that. They, they simply don't know. Yeah, everybody knows Pelé. Everybody knows Beckenbauer. Everybody knows Eusebio. That's it. That, that's where it stops. But they don't understand that the story about Greg Vanny. They don't understand Clyde Best when he was in um, Tampa, when he was in Portland. He coached. All these guys coached these players. They all did. And I think the first, that 1989 team with John Hawks and, and all these guys, uh, Steve, Steve Strichu and, and, and all the players that went 89 that went to, um, to, to Trinidad, that well, that's the first generation of American players that pretty much you know were respected worldwide, and they came out of the NSL. I I, I remember hearing John Hawk said he was a ball boy in um in 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 the Meadowlands there when um when the NSL was going on. He was he was a ball boy, uh, you know. So we don't we don't realize it, but we're watching the game and the standard is on in our heads. The technique that they see is in our heads, and then they go, and when they play, that's what they do. But sometimes we don't make the connection where we saw it or where we got it. But we, every generation learns from the preceding generation, and, and sometimes it's, most times it's unconscious. It's unconscious. You sit, you watch the game, then you go out and play, and really automatically you emulate what you just saw. And a lot of those guys came out of that. Lincoln Phillips coached all three of the U.S. goalkeepers, Miola, Brad Fiedel, and Casey Keller. He coached them. He was an assistant in the 1994 World Cup. 
<laughs> you know, uh, with the U.S. national team. But these guys don't know that. I went to coaching. Um, I've gone to coaching uh, to the, the the U.S. coaching uh, seminars uh, the, 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 that they have every year. U.S. Coaches Association. I've met Kobe Jones there and met other black players there, and they have no idea when I when I give them my handout, they have no idea of these black players and their names. They don't know any. They don't know these guys, and they should. They should, but they don't. I do think that some of some of it uh, winds up becoming, and we've talked about this with uh, with lots of different sort of former players and coaches, uh, regardless of race. Is sort of the, you know, uh, having uh, helped pioneer the sport in this country back in the day, uh, and staying right uh, for whatever reasons, either because they still felt passionate that there was a future to continue to build upon, or financially, or just uh, their quality of life or whatever in the states having come from uh, places elsewhere. And frankly, you're you're a really good example of that. I think you want to enlighten our audience as to what you've done since your playing career, right? Because you, you've stayed and you've uh, you've coached and, and been an administrator and you're continuing to sow the seeds that uh, continue to produce flowers uh, and gardens and uh, and 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 very uh, lush forests of, of success. So clearly still lots of room to go and grow on the international scene, but maybe a little bit of an example of how you've continued to sow and reap in the, in the soccer world here. Well, yeah, I, fortunately for me, I came very young. I was only 14 years when I came. So I was into it as soon as I came and it gave me a scholarship. It gave me a free education. I had a scholarship to Ottawa, which was the NAIA school. And then I had a scholarship to SIU. So I immediately I benefit free education. I, I, I studied journalism. So I'm, I'm a journalist and I'm currently an English teacher. You know, in high school, um, I when I stayed in the game because that's that's my source of inspiration. Everything else I do, it's inspired by soccer. You know, I'm teaching, but I'm looking forward to going to practice with my, my women's team at six o'clock in the evening after I leave school. When I have a hard time with the kids in school, teaching them because a lot of them have cell phones in the classroom and all that, I just can't wait. But I get I get excited again when I leave. And I go to play the girl, train the girls. That that's my panacea. I get a good night's sleep, and it allows me to get started again fresh the next day. And when I get up the next day, regardless of what happens in school, I'm looking forward to soccer, uh, to training the girls. Can't wait for the games on the weekends. So it, it has helped me as a person to 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 evolve. I coach. I meet a lot of youngsters. I I I I mentor them. I give them a lot of advice. When I was coaching the men's team, I brought up quite a few players from the Caribbean on scholarships. They stayed, they got their education, they got married, and they got jobs. So they made a life because of me, through me, and the same with Lincoln Phillips in uh, Howard University. Uh, Quite a few players came to Howard, and now a lot of them are doctors uh, back in the Caribbean, back in Trinidad. Alvin Henderson is a good example of that. You know, um, quite a few of them are doing well. So it has helped me, yes. To 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 uh, to to make a better life for myself, and most importantly, to help to make a better life for others, for others. And 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 people call me for advice all the time, um, you, you know, as to you know what's a good school, how could I go about doing this, how could I go about getting scholarships. Guys from my country call me all the time, and I give them good direction. So I was the fortunate one. Some of the black pioneers were older guys; they were in the twenties and so on. By the time they're done playing. Uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't have some of the benefits that I enjoyed because I went to school. A lot of them didn't go to school here, 
you know, but I went to school here from high school too, so I understood the culture, the system, and so forth. So it, it's helped me, and, and it's helped them too, because many of them stayed on. Here's another example. We had a player, but Grell was from Trinidad. He came as a youngster. He was in Atlanta, then transferred to Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C., he played for the Darts. And again, they had to look for jobs in the offseason. He found the job as a bailiff in the Washington, D.C. court system. Bert stayed there for 40 years because he, he was able to work and, and keep and, and, and continue to play. When the Washington Darts folded and, and it became the Miami Toros, he did not go to Miami with the rest of the players. He stopped playing soccer for a while and he continued his work uh, as a bailiff and, and he moved uh, through, the, um, through the channels and became more than that in the court system. So he stayed in Washington, D.C. for 40 years. He's now retired, and he goes back and forth between D.C. and uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Not only that, his two children also got jobs in the court system. So there are a lot of benefits uh, to it, um, but not enough. Uh, not enough. I, I brought us one, one of the few ones that benefited, and so did Lincoln Phillips. He stayed on, got a job at Howard University. He got his degree from Howard, was able to bring in players. And Lincoln has, he's one of the guys who's pretty much run the gamut in terms of the different aspects of the game, the different levels of the game. He had a camp, turned out players through his camp. Desmond Armstrong, who played for the U.S., came out of Lincoln Phillips' camp. He uh, became a, a, one of the USSF coaches to give the, the, the goalkeeper license. Um, he coached Keller. He coached um, Brad Fiedel. He coached uh, Tony Miola. He was part of the 1994 U.S. World Cup setup, uh, coached the university, uh, coached different youth teams, and, there, and a few other colleges after Howard. So, yes, it, 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 it helped, but I think um, the, the young players, today, the Kobe Joneses and, and, and those guys from that era, still don't know. And, and uh, it's, I think it's my responsibility as a journalist and who played in the league and to see that angle now that I'm retired um, to, to, to remind them and to tell them. And that's what the book does. And I hope, you know, folks read the book, get the book. It's on Amazon.com. It's on BarnesandNoble.com. And I'm doing a lot of um, publicity to, to help it, um, uh, you know, have it circulated because it has a lot of facts. It has the player's stats in it. And um, it, it, it's a record of, of what, you know, what the black player did for the development of the, the sport in, in, in the USA and Canada. Well, we, we, we love this, right, because it, the NASL uh, generally, right, because uh, I think there's a lot of uh, still untilled uh, soil of, uh, of history there, upon so which, you know, our so success. Much. Yeah. And, and you yeah. know, we, we only skimmed the surface. I mean, there's some great names of the of the past. I mean, Carl Valentine and Franz St. Lot and Jomo Sono and Godfrey yeah. Ingram, Franz Matthew, uh, you know, Willem yeah. Mafo- Arsenio Auguste. I mean, there's just a whole trove of, of great players that uh, were uh, uh, instrumental and very much part of the fabric of that league. And I, I think it's a very interesting spotlight. And that's why I wanted to talk to you and have this uh this conversation, I'm sure our audience is uh, is going to eat it up. What kind of promotion are you doing around the book, and uh, where is the embrace coming from? Mostly, uh, as people discover this uh, topic and your your book uh, around it. Well, from the soccer community, one of the things I'm doing is I'm looking at all the bookstores in the area and trying to do book signings. I'll be doing a book signing right here in Long Island in um, in, in Uniondale uh, at a bookstore there at a Barnes and Noble there. Um, so I'm, I, one of the players who are fe- who's featured in the book, Hayden Knight, 
Um, there's a bookstore in his area down in Wisconsin uh, that's interested in carrying the book, and he's asked me to come down and do a book signing, talk about the book, and and just um, you know bring some copies down and, and so forth, so that the the books the, the bookstores could continue to carry it. I'm taking the book to libraries. I'm taking the book to schools. The book is is um it's Black history. It's factual and it's also fun. The book is it it, it makes for good summer reading for the kids. You know the kids are out of school for two months and you you want to keep them you know reading. You want to keep them sharp. Well, they don't want to be reading textbooks and all those stuff that they have to read in school. So a, a book on sports, I think, um, even though they don't play sports, a book on sports pretty much will will keep them you know will keep them sharp. And again, there's a lot of motivational pieces in the book. Each of the players have their own little story. You know, Randy Horton was a teacher while he was still playing in the NASL. Randy Horton has quite a few degrees. He studied at Rutgers University. You know, he coached uh, at, a, at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, Horton became, from, from sports and from his teaching, he became a politician in Bermuda. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a lot of enlightening stories. The story on Bart Grell, who got that job as a bailiff in Washington and spent the next 40 years there and is now happily retired. Lincoln Phillips is a good story. You know, you, you also had uh, Tony Whalen, who played in, and Tony played in, um, and I've been in touch with him recently. Tony Whalen played in Fort Lauderdale and in Atlanta. He's now back at Manchester United as a coach in one of the academy coaches at Manchester United. That's where I found him. I spoke to him recently. He's still there. Uh, like you mentioned, some of the guys in, in the past, uh, Joe Musono. Hayden Knight is also a good story. Hayden Knight came out of Marquette University, and um, he was drafted. Uh, he played for Bob Gans' club team in Wisconsin when he was there, while he was in college. And um, Hayden went on to um, play for the U.S. national team and spent quite a few years in the NASL. And all that, these players, a lot of these players also show that you could be a student athlete. You could play soccer and still do well academically. So you could have your cake and eat it too, you know. Um, there will be a lot of interesting stories here. I think um, it, it's not just inspirational to black players, but to players in general of, of, of what you can do. And these guys came from humble beginnings. And they weren't paid much, but they loved the sport. And they did it. They taught a lot of the youths in the area. Quite a few, every, that was part of their contract. They all had to go into the neighborhoods and coach. Coach youths, coach clubs, coach the local schools, the high schools, and so on. And again, when we were in Memphis, the high school kids used to just come and watch us, watch us practice. So they learned. They learned the sport. And, and it, it's also, the, the sport helps you to interact with people from different races, different ethnicities, different nationalities. So you, you expand your geography knowledge because they'll tell you about their countries. And if you didn't know, when you meet someone, you ask him where he's from and he'll tell you. So now you know another country. And you can go further and look it up and find out where that country is and what language they speak and what foods they eat and all that sort of stuff. And then you get to understand other cultures so, you know, most of racism comes from a fact of fear and unknown, unknown about the subject that you, you seem to be hating, or so to speak. Um, but I think once you get past that, um, and, and, and in fact, that's, that's the nature of the game. So I'm sometimes a bit surprised, you know, when people become very, um, as I say, uh, spout racist remarks uh, in the game, when... The, the people that you, you're 
you're, you're criticizing. They're, pre, they're, they're providing entertainment for you. They, they're enhancing your life. You know, so, you know, but, but again, what trumps that, it, it's the, I guess it's the, um, it's what they're learning the, the, the society beyond the field. And, and they bring it to the game because of the, the atmosphere, the fervor, and the competitiveness that they're experiencing. And that's one way of them uh, experiencing it. So uh, there, there's so much to be learned from the book. Um, I'm trying to get it into the libraries. I'm doing a lot of uh, interviews for radio. Um, I just recently returned from the Caribbean where I did book signings in Trinidad and Tobago. There's quite a few of the players there, book from Trinidad and Tobago, and in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, where I'm from. Uh, and I'll continue to do that. Um, the summer is out. I'll continue to talk about the book and give out my um, bookmarks during the CONCACAF um, Gold Cup because I've been many of the stadiums there and in MLS. Well, we we thank you for taking time, and I I uh, I know our audience is going to enjoy this too, and and we will uh, we wish you nothing but the best uh, for this book. And frankly, you know, again, I think if you're you're an historian of soccer, if you're a participant in the sport, if you if you're uh, enjoying the riches that uh, Major League Soccer and and the and the pro game, as well as sort of the the roots underneath it. You know, obviously, I'm I'm a parent of a of a child who plays. Went to a game last night in the in the cold and shivering suburbs of Chicago. Uh, this is all part of the bigger tableau, not only of uh, of the game here in the United States, but the sport generally. And to your point, very eloquently said, uh, society in general. I, I think it's a it's a a very interesting topic. I'm 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 personally glad that you've you've spotlighted it, and I hope. Others will uh, will find it as well and and uh, and understand. I think to your point, uh, recognize really, uh, and we've talked about this many many times with our guests, specifically about the league of the NASL. What has come before, and uh, and how things exist today because of those things that came before, and and not by the way necessarily easily. It's a great thing that you're highlighting here, and I hope more people read it and uh, understand from it. Yeah, just a reminder, the name of the book is The Black Pioneers of the North American Soccer League, 1968-1984. And right now it could be had, it's an e-book, so you could get it on your on, on whatever platform you're downloading and, and, and using. Uh, it's on uh, Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, and again, it's, it's it's very interesting reading. It's it's a... Uh, Again, it's a history book, but it reads almost like a novel, you know, because it's, it's fun. It's light reading. And um, there are a lot of examples and there's a lot of motivational um, stories in, in the book. And I think people should look at sport as something that, that brings peace and brings people together. Um, not, not use it to divide and not use it to hate and not use it to, to hurt people. Because um, the, the, the game the game is supposed to enhance our lives. And this is why I, I want the American uh, administrators in MLS, please guard against the sort of things that go on in Europe right now in, in the stands. Guard against player behavior. I don't like to see players going into a referee's face with their fingers pointing at him. I don't like to see players, uh, you know, cursing at each other, and, and, and disrespecting the game. Because if it weren't for the game, I don't know where those guys would be today uh, if it weren't for the game. And they have to understand that um, they're, they're role models and, and they, in, they can incite, their behavior can transpire to people in the stands. And I think this is what the American administrators must remind, uh, their, um, uh, remind their players uh, of the role they play, 
of, of the, the spotlight that they're under and, and, and clean up the game and do not let all the negative things that we see coming out of Europe you know, come seep into the, into the American game. The American game should be the new soccer game. Man, oh man, a treasure trove of uh, of players and some names, frankly, I haven't thought of in, in a long time since uh, since uh, being a fan of the NASL. Uh, and, you know, frankly, there's a, a bunch of these uh, players who are still uh, proverbially and literally uh, alive and kicking. We'd love to talk to people like Randy Horton, you know, about their times in the league and, and, and others. Uh, we've, obviously, we've talked to uh, to Clyde Best in a previous episode, so please, by all means, look that one up on GoodSeatStillAvailable.com where you'll find all of our old episodes uh, that was a fascinating conversation and, frankly, a bit of a hint of, of some of the issues that we touched upon in our chat here uh, with Patrick. The book, uh, again, is called uh, Black Pioneers of the North American Soccer League. It is uh, published uh, by uh, Page Publishing. Uh, you will find, as uh, Patrick alluded to, it uh, on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you find books. Uh, it's available in ebook form as well. Uh, Patrick will be out and about in the uh, metropolitan New York area and hopefully some other places uh, in and around, say, things like the Gold Cup and maybe some uh, Major League Soccer games and stuff. Uh, this is a, a very, very interesting slice uh, of North American Soccer League history, but also the history of soccer in the United States, uh, professionally and otherwise. And frankly, the unsung role of many of the uh, uh, African-American and uh, otherwise black players that uh, inhabited the NASL and frankly, upon which uh, a lot of the success of the league uh, can rest uh, itself, and frankly, the players of, uh, of today's generation, uh, who uh, also should be very uh, appreciative and understanding of some of the uh, of the things the uh, that uh, these players uh, did to make this league work and be successful, uh, despite its demise in '84. But obviously, the seeds of things that came from it, including what we enjoy now, uh, that uh, 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 sort of came along. Uh, afterwards. And uh, we appreciate uh, our conversation with Pat and we appreciate you uh, continuing to support our show. And by all means, follow us on social media. Why don't you? We'll find us at uh, Twitter or on Twitter, of course, at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find us on uh, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find a Facebook page devoted to us. You can follow us there. You can send us email at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, you can also subscribe to our little uh, weekly newsletter, which gives you a little uh, early hint about what topic and uh, and people that we'll be talking about or with. And you'll find a link to that, uh, as well as all the other uh, old episodes uh, that you can stream or, or download or, or share, whatever you want to do uh, at your leisure. And that's, again, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to continue to throw into that website. Uh, but by all means, uh, if you like what you hear today, by uh, please indeed uh, subscribe, rate and review us, why don't you? You know, on Apple Podcasts or on Google or Stitcher or uh, Pandora now, uh, uh, you know, Spotify, wherever you listen, by all means, rate and review us. We love five-star ratings, hint, hint, wink, wink. Uh, not that we're trying to game the system, but it's a, it's a great way for uh, others to discover the show like you have and hopefully uh, continue to enjoy. Uh, before we run, of course, we have to say prodigious thanks to our friend, our good pal, Dr. Jerry Payne, uh, and his uh, colleagues at Podfly Productions. Without their help, and his help in particular, we wouldn't be where we are each and every week in your earbuds. And you can find out more about them, uh, Podfly Productions, at podfly.net. 
All right. I appreciate your listening. Uh, Thank you so much. We'll uh, talk to you next week with a fun-filled episode from some other topic from the world of forgotten sports. And until then, uh, the ticket window, sadly, but indeed, most importantly, uh, is now closed. Take care, everybody. Cantar na